You're listening to the Journeys of Scientists podcast put on by MSU WAMPS. These are casual conversations with graduate students in a variety of fields to learn about their experiences, research, and what brought them to where they are today. To keep up to date with future WAMPS events, be sure to check out our website at WAMPS.org and follow us on social media. We are MSU WAMPS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On this episode, we're joined by Emily Liljestrand. She is a fisheries and wildlife PhD student. Her work aims to find the best techniques to accurately and precisely estimate fish population abundances using fishery data. Hope you enjoy. Welcome, Emily. Can you introduce yourself? What is your area of study here at MSU? Hi. uh, Yeah, I'm Emily Lilgestrand. I'm a fifth-year PhD student in the uh, Fisheries and Wildlife Department, College of Ag and Natural Resources. And my work is entirely in uh, quantitative models. So taking information about the um, commercial fisheries, like how many fish were caught in what area at what time, feeding those into my statistical models, um, which output at the end metrics like the abundance and the mortality rate. And hopefully, um, if everything's connecting and going right, we can use those values to kind of set limits or set uh, management goals. So we can kind of keep fishing the fish long term, but fish as much as possible. Because if we take you know, only one or two fish a year, we're not making the most out of this resource upon which people rely. If we take all of it in one year, then you have nothing for the next year. So finding that middle ground using our um, quantitative models or stock assessment models. So I define myself, I call myself a, a stock assessment scientist or a quantitative fishery scientist. Okay. So you do inventory of fish, essentially. Inventory of fish. My girlfriend tells everybody that I count fish. And then anytime I'm hanging out with her and her, she's in political science, um, hanging out with her and her friends. They're like, how many fish did you see yesterday? I'm always like, at least two. One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. One fish, two fish. I saw a red one, saw a blue one. Exciting day. (laughs) Are you looking at specific fish, you know, like a Chinook salmon, or is it all, all uh, like all of it specific in an area? Oh, the Chinook salmon is not really my expertise. Um, I look in the, in the Great Lakes, I study um, Lake Michigan, Lake Whitefish. Uh, The reason I chose that is because I went to my advisor and I said, what's the, what's the fishery right now that has the most interesting models and and needs the most kind of new management advice. And he said it was Lake Michigan, Lake Whitefish. So I said, oh, right. Um, That's the one I look at, but I'm sponsored partly or at this point, I'm sponsored completely on a fellowship from the National Marine Fishery Service, NMFS, uh, which um, has a lot of these uh, fishery science centers along the, the coasts. And so since I'm sponsored by them, I uh, were funded, I guess I'm sponsored like I'm a like I'm a sporting event. It's very commercial um, of you. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> um, but uh, I'm. Uh, funded by the National Marine Fishery Service. So they care about marine fisheries as well. And so next month, in fact, I'm going to go out to uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts, um, out on the coast and help them kind of apply my modeling techniques, apply my my ideas to um, George's Bank haddock. So haddock is sort of like um, cod. It's like a little, it's like a whitefish. Um, 
that they they fish out on the East Coast. So my two fish I look at are um, whitefish and haddock. Don't really look at Chinook salmon, but I'm I the, the kind of models that I use could really be applied very broadly. So I'm not opposed to it. Okay. And I'll, I'm assuming that all of this is for like food, human consumption purposes, like making fish sticks, or is like, is there another reason why there is commercial fishing? It's like uh, catching, making fish sticks, making food. Um, though that's not, when we use the term fisheries, that applies very broadly and it can include things like uh, recreational fishing often. So we account not only for these, you know, big trawls or big, um, like commercial vessels going out and then selling those fish, but often our models account for um, the the weekend warriors, the the folks who who go out and and want to fish on rivers and want to fish um, offshore. Even um, we account for that kind of take uh, as well. Um, it's not always food fish either. So at my my masters, and I'm kind of jumping ahead because we will get to my journey to where <laughs> I am today, but. Um, the, for my master's, I studied a fish called menhaden, which very few people have heard of, but it's sort of like an alewife or a, like a sardine, something kind of smaller. And the primary reason we would take those fish is to grind it up to make fish meal or um, fish oil. So like those fish oil tablets um, that often is made from, from menhaden or fish meal that they use for, for fertilizers, um, in agriculture or increasingly in aquaculture. So it's a long answer to a short question of, um, yeah, it is the, is the, the food consumption fish, but also we use fish for a variety of reasons, including for, for fun and for health. Yeah. And how do you count fish if you're not just going individually? I'm assuming <laughs> there's some sort of like systematic process. It's uh, yeah, it's we, we did place a lot of trust in statistics. So um, when you have such a big system, say if you were, you know, staring down the Amazon and you wanted to count the number of trees, well, you couldn't just go it would take a lot of time, a lot of effort to do a complete survey of every single tree. I mean, you could do it, but it makes a little more sense and it works out statistically if you could take a subsample. And then based on like an assumed density, something like that, you can scale it up and say, we believe that there's this many trees plus or minus a certain amount that we can calculate statistically. It's not so different with fish. There's a saying that counting fish is like counting trees, except they're invisible and they move. (laughs) So (laughs) it's a pretty common saying in quantitative fisheries. So the techniques aren't so much, you know, just tying ribbons on, on trees or whatever the um, the forestry folks do. Um, it's a little more than that, but we do make certain assumptions about, okay, well, if you caught this many fish um, at this time and they're this age, you put that data in your spreadsheet, whatnot, and then you go back the next year and you say, okay, how many fish are there of one more one plus one age of what we already surveyed um, or what we already counted? Um, if there's kind of a precipitous drop, we'll know that you know, a lot of them died naturally in the environment. If it kind of stays the same, we might say not a lot of them did. Um, and from those numbers and from those relationships, we we understand across time and across things like ages and size um, data, we can calculate statistically what we think the abundance is with that uh, amount of error as well. Any sort of estimates we have, have this level of precision that we include. We say it's this plus or minus another number. Okay. Very interesting. And so then, wait, are you a master's student? 
PhD student. PhD student. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. And so where did you do like, where did first, what did you study in undergrad? Yeah, my undergrad, I didn't even know fishery science existed mm-hmm. in undergrad, which is wild because my mom has a master's in fisheries and wildlife. I didn't realize this until like two years ago. I was just looking at her degrees on the wall and I was like, wait, you got a, you got your master's in fisheries and wildlife? She's like, yeah. I was like, I thought it was, and it, I don't know what I thought. That never I thought came it, up in conversation. Never came up in conversation. It was never like, hey, this is a, this is a field. It's different from ecology. Cause now my mom is a lecturer at the University of Texas and she teaches mostly animal behavior, genetics, biology, um, kind of more your, your ecology evolution side of things. Um, and you've talked to a lot of other folks on this podcast who are from the iBio department, the integrative biology, which used to be called zoology. That's kind of what I thought most ecological science was, um, you know, folks studying the nuances of, of animal distributions and the animal behaviors or speciation. Um, I didn't really think that there was this field of fisheries and wildlife, which asks similar questions, but with a very human focus as well. Uh, it asked specifically about kind of the, the terrestrial and aquatic resources that humans rely upon um, a lot. And it includes aspects like hunting and fishing. I didn't really know that existed at all. And my undergrad, I went to uh, Rice University in Houston, Texas. I, cause I'm from Texas. Um, it's one of the top schools uh, in Texas. Both my parents went there. Um, I just really wanted to go there and they didn't have fisheries and wildlife. They had a pretty small ecology and evolution program, in fact. So I came in actually as a biochemistry major because I liked biochemistry well enough. I liked biology well enough. And that seemed like the bigger department with more resources. And it was more my interest at the time. But in the latter half of my undergrad, I realized I didn't really wasn't interested in, in enzymes and and cell biology. And I, I did a little bit of temporary work in a, in a genetics lab, uh, volunteering there. And it was a lot of just running PCR tests and, and the whatnot. And so I realized I didn't really like that. Um, instead of dropping the major though, since I'd already, it was kind of the sunk cost fallacy. I'd already gone so far into that, that I just picked up a dual (laughs) double major. So I was also, um, ecology and evolutionary biology. So I got my bachelor's in science in biochemistry and my bachelor of arts in ecology. Um, Didn't know what fishery science was at all until a few years later, I attended a workshop that was put on by the National Marine Fishery Service actually, and was intended to introduce undergrads and recently graduated folks to um, fishery science and quantitative methods. And I took an immediate shine to it and uh, went from there. Very nice. And so um, after you finished your undergrad, did you immediately go into the master's or did you take a break there? I didn't. So I I sense that as as someone who is now a a recent listener of your your podcast, it was fun to actually hear from uh, a lot of people I knew and realize that uh, more people did what I did than I realized. I thought most people went straight from undergrad to a a graduate program. And I've been very happy and excited to realize that's really doesn't seem like that's the majority of, of people's, of histories. So uh, I, in this case, I'm kind of the majority. I, I tried to 
apply to grad programs uh, right out of undergrad. I did it completely the wrong way and did not get into any of the places that I applied because I applied wrong and was devastated at the time, but uh, realized kind of in retro, everything. What does that mean? Applied wrong? Yeah. Good question. Um, I think applied wrong in that I just looked at programs and applied to the programs. I applied to graduate school the same way I applied to undergrad, which was I just identified programs that sounded interesting to me, uh, identified research labs that sounded interesting to me, and just wrote out an application and submitted it before the deadline. What I should have done and what I did later and what is highly recommended for anybody who's interested in grad school is contact the advisor first. Contact the head of the lab that you're interested in doing research in tell them who you are, tell them why you're interested in the work, ask if there's any openings in the lab and or if an opening can be made for you. If they reply, they can give you the information like, sorry, no, I really don't have any funding right now. Um, good luck to you. Don't waste your time applying here. They could say something like, oh, we have a side fellowship. Maybe you can apply for a fellowship within the department. We can work something out. Or they could say, yes, absolutely. I've been advertising for someone. Please come on in. And since I didn't talk to them, you know, I didn't know which of those three cases might've been true. Um, They definitely weren't going to, the department wasn't going to look at my application and kind of take this chance on me without any one person in the department saying like, Oh yeah, I talked to her. I know her. I know she's interested. It wasn't going to happen. And so I, I kind of just went about it the wrong way. And, but it was good because at the time I was applying to those sorts of programs that I don't think I would have fit in with. I, I was uh, very interested specifically in cuttlefish and I thought cuttlefish are the coolest thing ever. I'm just going to like apply to all the labs I can find that do research in cuttlefish. Also the wrong way to go about it. Um, you kind of think about the question rather than the, the animal first. Think about the, the questions you want to ask in science before you think about what your study species is. Um, and so when I was rejected from everything, um, you know, had a little cry about it, uh, went out to um, Woods Hole where I'd been spending my summers up until then uh, to uh, serve as something called a course assistant. So they have these graduate level neuroscience courses out there and they need undergrads to kind of help grease the wheels, manage uh, things for for these intensive 12-week programs. Um, I did that for the summer right after I graduated. And then I got a job in a biochemistry lab because that's what my degree was in. That's what my bachelor's of science was in. I had those skills and I was able to apply them. Um, But it was during that time of helping out with a a cancer biology lab at Baylor College of Medicine uh, down in Houston. Um, it was during that time that I was able to seek out these other opportunities like this workshop in fisheries and uh, really understand uh, where I wanted to go to grad school and why I wanted to go to grad school and then reapply a few years later and um, go where I did for my master's. Yeah. And so then how did you end up here at MSU? I ended up here at MSU because I sort of jumped the line in the academic family tree. Um, If you're familiar with that concept of your advisor advises you, and then if your advisor has a PhD, they must have been advised by someone else. And then that person must have been uh, advised by someone else up until the first 
PhD was awarded somehow somebody looked at themselves and gave it to them, I guess. No other explanation for the genesis of the first PhD. But um, I I did my master's at the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Sciences um, with somebody who got his PhD at MSU. So my advisor's advisor is now my advisor. Um, and cause I was finishing up my, my master's and I was like, where should I apply for my PhD? I, I really want to learn more stuff. I really, to reach my long-term goals, I'm going to need a doctorate. So I know I'm going to want to go somewhere for my PhD. Where should I go? And of course my, my master's advisor was like, well, I got mine at Michigan state university, the fisheries and wildlife department with Jim Benz. And so I asked him if there was any openings and he said, they'll, they could make one for me. And so that they did. Very nice. And you said this helps you towards your career goals. What are those? Doing stock assessment, like professionally, whether that's in an academic environment or a federal um, management type environment, not necessarily federal. Um, There's many levels of of governance when it comes to uh, fish resources, Um, how we kind of allocate cash limits at like state levels national levels, local levels, so on and so forth. Um, but my my role models have always been, and the people I've worked closely with have been stock assessment scientists for NOAA, the National um, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And I think their jobs are so cool. They do basically what I kind of been explaining earlier. They take in all this information about what fish got caught where and how old they were and how long, how, how big they were and feed it into these models that they're, they're always updating, always trying to improve upon um, as far as the statistical methods and what kind of parameterizations they're assuming. And they are the ones who, who produce these models that create these outputs every year of where do we think the abundance is? Where do we think the fishing mortality is? And giving this information to the the managers, the politicians who actually make the decisions about where to set those limits. I've always thought that's an awesome job, um, but similar research is done in the academic environment as well. So I think I'm fortunately in a position where I don't, I'm still this, this fork in the road, where I don't have to pick one way or the other, whether I end up a, a, a professor at a, a, a primarily research institute or a, a federal stock assessment scientist. But either way, it would be doing that kind of original research of what are these kinds of models we're using to assess fishery stocks and how can we make them better? And what even is better mm-hmm. is, yeah. is a bigger question within the field, too. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. So during your time and your like previous previous studies in either undergrad or or, or even your master's, where that were you involved with any sort of extracurriculars or things outside of lab or classwork? Yeah. Um, so funny enough, um, you know, I started at Rice University as a biochemistry major, hanging out with the other biochemistry majors, many of whom were pre-med students. And the people I admired at the time, the kind of the rock stars within biochem and the pre-med students were the on-campus EMTs. So the emergency medical technicians Rice University is one of the only, no, increasingly there's more. Um, it's it's one of many, I think, at this point, 
universities that has an on-campus EMS service that's staffed by the students themselves. And so there's every year in the spring, they put on a um, EMS course. So literally two or three times a week for several hours, you sit down and you learn all the things you need to be, all the things you need in order to be a emergency medical technician. At the end of the semester, you take your official licensing test. And by the end, you are a, a certified EMT. And then you can turn around and join the Rice EMS service and literally work 12-hour shifts. You have your radio, you're in your uniform, you have your um, uh, golf cart, which was really fun on campus. You could just pull it up uh, <laughs> onto the sidewalk in front of your classroom and just like roll out. Does it have a little sirens on top of, you know, like oh, an ambulance? Absolutely, it does. <laughs> that was like half of the appeal. Half of the appeal was just you're getting to roll. So I think I was probably walking into a biochemistry course or something. In retrospect, this is the nerdiest thing ever, especially now I'm 30 and I'm imagining like 19 year olds in like these black uniforms with like a radio and a pager. Yeah, we still had, we had pagers thinking they were like the coolest thing at the time as a fellow 19 year old, or maybe they were 20 and I was like 19. And I was like, I want to do that too. It's a great skill to have, you know, emergency medicine. Maybe I do want to be a doctor. Uh, Maybe I am actually interested in this. Who's to say, like, maybe I'll find a a true calling in this. And so um, I took the spring course my freshman year um, and joined the EMS service my sophomore year. And that was the majority of my extracurricular was serving once or twice a month, doing these 12 hour shifts, um, serving in special events. So they would hire us for, so the, the 12 hour shifts were unpaid, but we would be paid handsomely for being on call during football games, during special events, when there were famous politicians around, um, for like alumni, uh, dinners and such. Um, and that was nice because you got to put on your your formal uniform, which is a little different from your everyday uniform and and serve during those, um, but also doing shifts like in the city and, and stuff. So working for the not, sorry, not working for, but volunteering for the Houston Fire Department as well. Okay. Do you still participate in any sort of like certification or training or anything like that now? No, my certification lapsed um, a few years after. I got out of undergrad and I never went to the trouble of, of redoing it because it's kind of pricey to, mm-hmm. to go through all the classes and to take the certification test and this and that. And I just knew it, it wasn't going to be something I really pursued. Um, there's something called like the, the bystander laws as well. And if you, if you practice, if you are certified EMT and you do something to help somebody and it doesn't go well because you were ignorant or you did something that was like not textbook mm-hmm. and you are very like liable. If you are not certified, if you're just a normal person and you are providing kind of best care that you think is pot that you reasonably think is possible and that's not textbook, then you can't really be faulted because you didn't know. And I was like, I've just been so long since I actually studied the book, since I've been in practice and stuff. I kind of want to be a bystander again (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I don't think my knowledge is up to date and I don't think um, I'm ready to, to offer any emergency service. I was on a plane recently and they had, they asked, you know, is anybody a doctor? And I was just like, got right, very comfortable (laughs) back into my seat. I was like, 
I used to uh, raise my hands and be like, I'm an EMT. Is there anything you guys need? Um, this time I was like, took another sip of my gin and tonic. I was like, no, thanks. <laughs> I'm just gonna go back to watching Batman or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what do you, so in your like current PhD work, do you, are you just like nonstop work or, and or classes or like, what do you do is kind of like to escape from the stressors of grad school? Sure. I mean, part of the advantage of, of grad school and how it's different from undergrad is I do see it more as a job. And as such, I'm a fan of kind of restricting yourself to no more than 40 hours a week. Sometimes there's exceptions if you have a really hard deadline or you need to kind of work more one week to work less another week. But for the most part, as far as keeping yourself sane and and reaching the um, the work-life balance that everyone talks about is it, like keeping yourself to kind of a, a nine to five um, for the most part is, is what I, I tend to do. So I have plenty of time outside of um, things to, to pursue hobbies, to hang out with other grad students and, and friends. Um, as far as extracurriculars right now, I, I do a lot for our graduate student organization. So the Fisheries and Wildlife Department has a, a GSO, grad student organization, that does a ton of stuff uh, for the department. We have a, a magazine that we put out uh, called Spotlight every single year. We have a symposium that we put on that's a one-day thing where students talk about their research. We have social events with amongst ourselves, professional development events, um, and so on. And I just, knowing that this was kind of the last chance I was gonna have to be in like a student club, uh, over the five years I've been here, I've served on almost every job there is. Like one year I was the social chair and one year I was the picnic coordinator because that was a job. And then I decided to be treasurer and I decided to be the webmaster. And so I'm very involved in, that's my my main extracurricular now. And the form that I take, that the form that that takes for me depends on how I'm feeling that year when they call for new um, officers to to run for the various positions. Would you say you're someone who says yes to everything? Unfortunately, yes. And my, uh, yes, actually, Brian, I do. <laughs> uh, much to the um, uh, frustration of my advisor, I think. I might have been done with grad school a year ago if, uh, if I didn't say as, yes to as many things as I do. I also, no regrets because it's been really rewarding, I guess, to to see such a, a flourishing graduate student organization and see all the good work we do. Yeah, very nice. Could you say the name of the organization again? Yeah, it's just the Fisheries and Wildlife GSO. And GSO stands for Grad Student Organization. Okay, very nice, very nice. Yeah. I also know, well, since you study fish and birds eat fish, and speaking of birds... There is a falcon cam at MSU, which I heard. Yeah, you've heard about that. I've heard about that. I discovered it randomly by accident. How? Well, I knew about the the Beaumont Tower cam already to begin with. And so this, the, I don't know, I guess last week or whatever, I was like, oh, I'm just going to look that up, see like if the tower looks different. And -hmm. instead now it's pointing at this bird. And then I asked uh fishery and wildlife person who i knew studied birds mm-hmm. um olivia and i was yeah. like hey 
what's up with this bird cam? Can you tell me anything? Then Sarah is like, Emily is a huge fan of this. I am a huge fan of the bird cam. And actually that's uh, such a good transition from what I was just saying, because we have, all right, so I just ended on grad student organization. We also have an extremely active um, undergrad organization. I am so proud of these guys. I've served as the like liaison for the undergrad group for two years now. Um, and so this job is basically kind of attend their meetings, um, pop in with them, ask if they need any help from the grad students to do any sort of activities that they are trying to pursue that might need grad student help. And for the most part, they say thanks, but no thanks, because they are on top of their shit and they're doing some of the coolest stuff on campus right now. They they did ask for our help. Um, once a week, they do, they have a meeting that's not just oh, the club is meeting, what are we going to do next? But it has often like a purpose and often has like a guest speaker who comes and teaches them about trapping methods or um, how to set up camera traps or how to tag deer, um, anything related to like fisheries and wildlife like methods. And so often they've asked for help from grad students to come and teach those concepts to them. And we, I've happily like put them in touch with them. They put on picnics, they they do their own stuff, and it's amazing. And so this, the Falcon Camp, is their project. It was uh, a few months back. I, I remember seeing they were they were putting out requests for, for donations for help. They've got they got generous donations through crowdfunding and through I think the forestry department um, to not only set up this bird box, they built the structure that this falcon is currently, this falcon family, I should say, is currently living in. Um, but I think they're the ones who set up the webcam as well that helps them. It's uh, his name is Evan Griffiths is the the undergrad who's in charge of that and uh, is credited for helping set that up. They but they built this box, uh, which is sort of if you can imagine like a cardboard box with one wall removed. Mm-hmm. So it's like a giant kind of C shape uh, with two sides as well. Um, all the bottom is filled with gravel, and these this pair of peregrine falcons has uh, taken nest up there. I believe that even before they set up the box, the peregrine falcons were trying to nest there. And by there, I mean the Spartan stadium. So if you think the football stadium, they're literally up on the top of the stadium right now. Um, About a month ago, I think they started checking it out. They started like, you know, kind of hanging out there more, deciding that this was going to be their nest. And over the last month or so, one by one, four eggs have been laid by this couple. And at this point, like right now, you could go to YouTube and say MSU Falcon camera um, or Spartan fan, Spartan Falcon cam or something, and just pull it up. And it's literally what I've been doing is I just, when I'm at my desk, when I'm writing my code, doing my models, you know, I've never touched a fish the entire course of my, my study here for my own research. Um, you know, I'm very much a desk jockey. I'm just writing my code, doing my models, drinking my tea on one of my three screens. I just put the bird cam up just to sort of have it. I guess I'm, you know, I don't have any pets. So it's just like one, it's, it's like the in-between between having an actual pet and like a, a, a neo pet or something or like a chia pet. It's like, I, I feel like, like some ownership of it, even though these are completely wild animals, but, um, yeah, just having it there in the day and seeing the um, the birds has been 
so fun. And, and knowing that the undergrads were, were giving back to this has been like so amazing. Um, have you pulled up the stream at all? Yes, I just pulled it up. It is hanging it out. It's hiding from the wind. Oh my gosh. I'm going to pull up which one. I, I'm i not a bird person. I, um, if, you may be, if you're kind of an internet literate person or you're on Twitter, you might know that there's this tongue-in-cheek rivalry between birds and fish in the ecological community. Um, I thought it was a real-life rivalry, as in one ate the other. Oh, no. Well, yes. <laughs> it's also pretty literal in that sense. I don't know if there's any, I have to think of if there's any cases of birds, of fish eating birds, but um, to my knowledge, I think they've got kind of the advantage there. Um, but just within scientists on Twitter, often it's like team bird and team fish. And so sort of like loyal to the fish community mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Okay. Um, don't know much about birds, never been birding, but I'm just like loving watching these guys. And yeah. I'm learning so much just from from watching them and from the news blurbs we get from the undergrads on their social media and from our department. Um, I didn't realize that peregrine falcons lay between one and five eggs. Um, oh, sorry, between three and five eggs every breeding season. And from the point of laying to uh, incubation and hatching is going to be about 30 days. I didn't know that two months ago. Now I do. So much. I'm pulling it up right now, though. Um, Spartan Falcon Cam. We'll get you there. I'm pulling it up because I kind of am able to recognize whether it's the male or the female. They switch off shifts um, and one will fly away and the other one will pop in like a minute. Oh, so in theory, this this one is now probably laying on top of the eggs. Yes. So if you're looking, so we're both looking at the same footage right now. You see, it's like picking at the, at the, (laughs) the pebbles. It's kind of pulling them towards, I think this is the male. Um, Oh, did you see, you can kind of see the eggs. Mm. Cause he's leading so far forward that um, his butt is up in the air and you can kind of see the eggs. Um, there's there's four in there right now. They're they're reddish in color. Take a um, screenshot for the audio listener. Oh, oh yeah, yes. And it's just so cute. You just see them there all day, rain or snow or sunshine. Um, sometimes I don't realize it's snowing until I look over. I, I I can't even tell by looking out the window of my office. I can only tell by looking at the Falcon Cam, and I see the like the snow coming through and starting to cover these these poor birds, and they just like. Of course, they don't acknowledge the camera, but I almost picture it's like the office and they're kind of like looking straight at the camera, like, womp, womp. <laughs> what you going to do? Parenthood. <laughs> but yeah, um, I promised before we started recording that I, I knew like five or six facts about the bird camera. Yeah. Can we I get a countdown said going? All, yeah. I think I might have said all the thing about the undergrad setting it up, the male and the female. Oh, it's like nesting on it now. Do you have any other questions for me? I might be able to answer. Regarding the bird? No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> we sort of, it seems like if it's on top of the stadium, that seems disruptive during football games. Yeah. I'm not sure. I Because you can kind of see the back. It looks like it's not near and where anybody's seated. I have the feeling if they incubate and they hatch in the next 30 days, they might be out of there before the summer even. Yeah. 
I'd have to look up the details of the biology, but I doubt there's ever a conflict with the football. Do they mate for life? Do you know? That I don't know. Um, yeah, can't speak to that at all. Um, do you, does it have a name? Oh my gosh, that's a good question. Okay, so the, the undergrads uh, have their, they're killing it with their social media as well. And I think one of the questions they asked recently was for name ideas. And I'm going to see if they have them readily available. I should have pulled these up beforehand. Um, clicking. We just called them the feathered Spartans. And then they requested um, some baby names. Mm. Oh, well, here's one Heather and Feather. Okay. I don't know if that's a suggestion for the babies or for the parents. If I scroll down a little more to the social media. Yeah, I think it was just on their, their Instagram story for one day. And then they showed all the answers and then they disappeared, unfortunately. But uh, one of their posts says, can you believe it? Our feathered family now has four eggs. Peregrine falcons are known to produce two to five eggs on average. Are we going to get another addition to the family? Guess we'll have to wait and see. So far, no. So far, still four. The only thing I knew about peregrine falcons before this was kind of in elementary school, there'd always be like the one kid who was really into animal facts, yeah. really into like sighting animal facts. And we'd kind of get into this discussion and be like, well, the fastest animal is a cheetah. And the kid, <laughs> the like really busy buddy kind of smart aleck kid would be like, no, 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 no. The smartest, the, the, the fastest animal is the peregrine falcon because its speed is, you know, it's like 200 miles per hour or something, yeah. but that's like, it's diving speed. Yeah, it's, so yeah, gravity is it's helping falling. It a lot. <laughs> it's falling, but falling with style. And yeah. it's the intense. Buzz Lightyear of birds. <laughs> hey, yeah. Movie reference. Are you going to see the new movie? The new, oh, the. Have you seen the new trailer for the new Buzz Lightyear? I, I have not. Isn't that like some streaming thing? I'm an old man who doesn't stream. Oh my God. I'm an old lady. I still make it to the theater a couple times a week. Uh, no, they're doing a new, I think, Pixar movie or Disney movie. Um, and Ooh. Chris Pratt is voicing Buzz Lightyear. Oh, and yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I know yeah, what you're yeah, talking about. It's like about. the animated, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Why not? I'm a child on the inside. <laughs> I've got, uh, for Christmas, uh, my girlfriend got me the movie pass at the, mm. the Celebration Cinema oh, um, mm -hmm. that's around here. And it's 20 bucks a month and I'm, I can redeem it for three free movie tickets a week. Ooh. So now I'm just always scanning yeah. the, the listings and, and just nice. hitting up my theater Very whenever nice. I can, <laughs> as much as I can. Yeah, later, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say later tonight, I'm going to go see um, everything everywhere all at once, which is oh, the okay. new Michelle Yeoh movie. Yeah. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, it's been a long time since I've been been in a theater i think it's been like three years since i've actually been in a theater i like going That's, to the movies i just like haven't for i mean covid can knock that out for a while of course yeah totally fair totally reasonable yeah super cool all right so we're still recording a podcast here but. yes we are i don't know how much of that i tried to make that <laughs> podcast content the whole way through
but uh, to wrap things up, since you listened to the couple episodes of the podcast, you probably know what's coming. Oh, I do. Do you have Should any? Go, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> so what Brian's going to ask me is um, if I have any advice for either people who are about to go into grad school or are already in grad school um, about how to be a grad student. And if I was actually going to ask you if you imagine a triangle in the head, what color is it? But no, your question is very good too. Let's go with that. (laughs) You've pivoted very much in this podcasting format. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It's blue, by the way, always. Interesting. um, Same answer for grad school. I think it's green, but okay. Oh my God. We're going to have to throw down. Um, Yeah, I think a lot of folks have given really good answers on this um, about... And I, I've already kind of explained in in a mm-hmm. tangential way uh, the application process, which a lot of people have spoken to. And I was thinking about this, and my answer there's a, there's a line from The Office that I'm going to butcher, um, but it's like Michael Scott who says like it's, it's either Michael Scott or Andy who says you I wish I knew the when were the good times while I was in them. It's like, you always know when, the, you know, the good old days are when you look back at it. And it's hard to tell when you're, when you're in it, when the good old days are. And I think at least my own grad school experience, I understand that sometimes grad school can be unfortunately really toxic when you don't have the right situation, when you don't have the advisor, you don't have the right work that you're doing. Um, but hopefully that's not the case because I really think that I'm in the good old days. I think I'm having one of the best experiences, one of the best times of my life. And I hope other people feel this way as well while they're they're in their own grad programs, um, feeling the same sense of community, feeling the same initial wonder about their fields and initial like buildup of, of knowledge, um, getting the same feeling of, pushing to the end of understanding and then pushing that a little bit further. Um, It's been fantastic for that. And I think, I, I hope that everyone is having similar experiences and I hope that people, they can see the joy of the grad school experience, find those good moments. And if this is, for them, like me, you know, the good old days, one of the the best times of their life that they'll, they'll enjoy it while they're in it. And that involves things like, like having perspective and, and seeing the forest for the trees and not getting so stressed when you, you know, don't hit that, um, you don't get that grant you want, or your abstract isn't accepted for a, um, a, a conference. Just, keep in mind the whole experience that you're having and keep in mind the, the community you're in. And um, yeah, I hope I, yeah. I wish I ended on something more profound. That I wish there was like one more sentence I could say, but, but yeah, like acknowledge that this can be some of the best times uh, of your life and, and try to see it for that and try to see the enjoyment. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good note to to end on. Uh, thank you. Thank you for this fun and thought-provoking episode. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to being a 
continued subscriber. <laughs> I already started following on uh, on Spotify. Thank you. <laughs> so every single one will go to my inbox from now on. <laughs>